0: forget. Jesus loves you. Bye.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right, we are in our third week of our series going through the book of Acts, and I realized while I set aside seven or eight weeks for this series, because of special events and guests we have, I only have four weeks left in this series to get through the rest of the book of Acts. So I'm going to be preaching four chapters today, and no, I'm just kidding. Um... <laughs> But, uh, but we're really going to have to get, get to it here. I'm excited. We're still in chapter 2 though. So uh, uh, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Acts chapter 2. Now before we get started, I honestly do have to eat some humble pie here. Um, I always like to give accurate information. Not just like to, I make it a goal to always make sure everything I share is accurate and, and truthful. Um, and last week I mentioned that Christianity, more specifically Pentecostalism, is the fastest growing religious movement in the world. Um well I went back and was reviewing my sources and uh and I want to make sure I clarify something um because I don't want it to just be the partial truth. So um Pentecostalism is is the fastest growing religion in the world through religious conversion. Um according to the Pulitzer Center, which is not a Christian organization, the Pulitzer Center says 35,000 people become born again every single day. Um And according to sociologist Peter Berger of Boston University, he said the spread of Pentecostal Christianity may be the fastest growing movement in the history of religion. It is moving just incredibly quickly. Now, that said, in terms of numerical growth, we need to be aware that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. However, according to the Pew Research Center, its growth is not primarily through converts, but through high birth rate. And in the Islamic world, there's a fear due to adherence leaving their religion. And so it's, it's growth within their own movement. So I wanted to make sure that was clear. I don't want to ever mislead you or to say something. You're like, I looked it up and Prince a liar. So I won't trust anything. He says, <laughs> I want, I want to make sure that I, I just level with you on that. So th- 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 does that make sense? What I just shared? Um, you can send again, your angry emails again as Jordan.drewer at NLC com. But, uh, that said, I do want to give you some more facts, and I made sure I was very careful in running all these down. I love uh, statistics and factoids. You might find that in my preaching. You might have noticed that I enjoy these. They just get my blood pumping. I'm, I'm a nerd like that. But uh, I personally have found uh, Major League Baseball much more palatable this year. Than, since they added the pitch clock, for those that aren't aware, now there's a limit on how much time they can stand there and hold the ball and him and Han spit and scratch themselves. They have to actually throw the ball in a reasonable amount of time. Now, I know that might upset some purists out there, but to be honest, I've got places to be and I don't have time for a guy to adjust his batting glove 16 times between each pitch, and I enjoy it a little more. So, anyway, last year, all that said, Major League Baseball had a resurgence in the total number of attendants. Um, They had 2,430 games played last year, and in all of those games across Major League ballparks, there were 64.49 million people that went to pro baseball games. That's a lot. The NBA had its highest attended regular season in NBA history last year, selling 22.2 million tickets for all of its 1,230 games that were played last year. The NFL had 272 games last year and a total fan attendance of 18.8 million people. NASCAR. We're not really a NASCAR area here, are we? I I don't know. My my neighbor was really into NASCAR. We got some NASCAR. Okay, NASCAR has a 36-race season for the Cup Series, and it enjoyed a total of 2.5 million tickets sold. That's a lot of tickets. So if you were to take all of those and add them all up, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NFL, NASCAR, all those events, all the attendance for an entire year, you would get a total attendance of 107,990,000 people that have gone to these events in a given year. That's pretty amazing. However... I hope this will astonish you as it astonished me. According to the Pew Research Center, on any given week, 119,484,000 Americans will attend a religious service or gathering. In one weekend, in one single weekend, more Americans will go to church than all the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, and NASCAR events combined for a year. Is that wild? You can look that one up. I promise that's accurate. So many people go, go to church. It's about 36% on a national average that go to church. We know we live in a very unchurched area of our world right here in, in the Northwest. Um, it's a much smaller percentage. But across the United States, about 36% uh, of Americans go to a religious gathering, a church service um, in the year. But many go to church without really knowing the why. And, and we talked about this last week. We talked about the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and our generation especially wants to know the why. Why am I here? Why am I sitting here listening to this guy talk to me right now for you know for the next uh, three hours? And you know he's got a lot of chapters to go through. Um, we want to know why. And some of it, some people go to church because it's tradition. It's what our parents did. It's what we do. It's what we do every Sunday. It's part of our rhythm. Some go because of guilt. Some go because it's habit, and let me tell you, it's not a bad habit. I'd say there's definitely worse habits than going to church. <laughs> but what is the purpose, and what's our part in the ecclesia, the body of Christ, the gathering of the believers? What's, what's the whole meaning and reason behind it? Well, we're going to go again, Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost has happened. Remember, the Holy Spirit fell, and it filled that room, and the di- disciples went out and they started preaching, and Peter delivers a banger of a message. He preaches a storm, right? He is, he just brings down fire. People are coming to the Lord. And so here's what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. So Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and your children and even to the Gentiles and all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging his listeners, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. 3,000, that's a good altar call right there. I'll take that any day. But this is a very new, fragile, small group of believers in its context. If you think about the greater context of this, this is all the believers in the world right here. This is everybody. That's one mega church now, right? One one smaller megachurch in, in in total number of believers. So it's powerful, and yet it's like new embers of a campfire. Have you ever got a, a fire going and it's and it's just so delicate? You don't want to blow too hard, um, you don't want to give it too much much oxygen, and you're kind of just trying to move it along. And so this this very fragile group of believers has been birthed. This new birth of believers is here in Jerusalem. And and so what do they do then? What did what happens with these three thousand believers? Because so easily the the enemy wants to snatch up what God has done, right? The enemy wants to destroy this new thing that's begun. So here's what it goes on to state, say in verse forty two. Starting in verse forty two, it says, So all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So we're going to break this text down because within it we see the DNA of this new, fresh, birth church that's been laid out for us here. Um, Now, it says that they enjoyed the the goodwill of all the people. That was very very short-lived. If you read chapter 3, then, it kicks right into the next part where Peter and John heal a crippled beggar, and that just turns all the tables on the church. Peter and John are arrested, and the church comes under tremendous persecution from that day forward. So that was a very short-lived time that they were enjoying the favor of all the people. But, uh, uh, but let's take a look at what, what's going on here in verse 42. This is where we're going to primarily focus is in verse 42. It says there that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing meals and to prayer. They devoted themselves. When I hear the word devoted, what, what, you know, I'll say this out loud. This is just to yourself. What do you think of when you hear the word devoted? Uh, when, I, when I think of the word, I think of something someone like a mother. A devoted mother, sacrificial for the sake of her children, right? Have you ever heard the term a devoted mother? I hope you have. Um, Late nights, early mornings, preparing meals, driving to events, maintaining a schedule, helping with homework, praying over her children while they sleep, at times going without so that her children do not have to do that. I think of devotion like that. The Greek word for devoted is translated as steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. Steadfast and devoted to a single course of action. Brent's definition of devotion, it's a little simpler, is complete uncompromising commitment. Complete and uncompromising commitment. If you're devoted to something, there is no havesies about it. You're not riding the fence. You are completely committed uncompromisingly to a, to a, 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 a commitment. See, there are some contexts. I was brainstorming. What are some contexts in which I want to be working with someone who's completely devoted? I was thinking through this. And the first one I came up with is my surgeon. I want a surgeon who is completely devoted. I want them to be devoted to the mastery of their craft, right? To, I, I don't want to be in a pre-op meeting for, you know, lying on the gurney and, and, and my open-heart surgery is about to happen and my surgeon's like, yeah, you know, I like to dabble with cardiovascular surgery. <laughs> It's kind of a weekend thing. That wouldn't feel good. Another, another one I thought of. The coach of my favorite team. I want them to be devoted to winning. I want them to be devoted to developing their players. I want them to be devoted to their scheme. I don't want to hear the coach of my favorite high-level team to just say, I just want everyone to have fun. That's, are they having a good time? That's for, that's for YMCA and kids' sports. I want, I want to win, you know? Those those men out there playing should not be having fun. The pilot of the plane I'm riding on, I want him devoted to what he's doing. I want him devoted to their knowledge of the aircraft they're on, devoted to knowing the flight path, devoted to the FAA regulations. I don't want to overhear them in the cockpit saying, I sure am glad there's autopilot on this thing because I was up all night playing Call of Duty. That. I want them to devoted to what they're doing. See, all of these careers require complete devotion to attain the title that they've earned, right? Complete devotion to earn and maintain that level that they're at. It can't be passive. It can't be casual. And so when we read here in Acts chapter 2 that the believers were were devoted, they were at that level of commitment. Everything they have is put towards this. But to what? Let's talk about these things. It says all the believers believers were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first thing we see there is the... The first thing they were devoted to was the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles were the twelve disciples. Okay, um, to be an apostle biblically was you had to have a firsthand encounter with Jesus, actually seen him and experienced him face to face. That's why Paul was later able to be an apostle. He had a face to face encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, right? And so um, we we uh, we we know that or I said Emmaus. I'm sorry, Damascus. Damascus. They rhyme. It's close. Um, so so. Um, to be an apostle meant you had to have face-to-face encounters with Jesus. So they devoted themselves to those that had the story. See, the early church, they didn't have the advantage of this. They didn't say, hey, everybody, let's open our Bibles and open to the book of Matthew. Because Matthew's sitting right there. Matthew's like, me? He's telling the story, right? Let's open to Mark. Mark's like, okay, I'll, I'll share a little bit. So, so the gospel is next to them. So they devoted themselves, when they're, when they're talking about devoting themselves to the teaching of the, of the apostles, they're committing themselves to, to the apostles' teaching and to biblical doctrine and to the word. And so we as a church can model after the early church that we need to be, have complete and full devotion to the word of God, to solid doctrine, to digging in, to understanding the word. We need discipleship and biblical instruction. God doesn't want you to remain a spiritual baby. We need to grow up in the word. Um, this, this week, I went and saw Rhonda and visited her over in the preschool. I said, how's your week been? She goes, well, um, her son-in-law is a police officer, and very last minute, she, he had to go into work, so he brought their six-month-old uh, child over to, to the potters for grandma and grandpa to watch him, but Rhonda had to go to work. So Jerry's there with, this, with, with his precious, adorable granddaughter, and he's great with her, but she experienced her first ever blowout. And I'm not talking about tires, okay? (laughs) And Rhonda said she's at school, like school is going, and she gets a phone call, and Jerry's like, you need to get over here right now. (laughs) She's like, leave for a poopy diaper? Yes, a poopy diaper. You don't understand. (laughs) My boys are almost 10 and 14, and I'll tell you, I am glad I am past the diaper age. I don't want them to need diapers anymore. That would be tragic. That would be a, a, really a pro- problem. Or, or have to process their foods for them in a food processor. Like, here's your yams. you know, And giving them that. Because they have graduated up to eating solid foods. Yet, God is concerned when he sees a person who's been a believer for 5 years or 10 years or 15 years. Who hasn't grown and they still need baby food. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you... I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready. Ooh, Paul's shooting fire there. He says, I'm, I'm feeding you like a little baby. You can't eat grown-up food. Part of our goal as members of the body of Christ is to grow up spiritually, to not be dependent on someone pulling us along, but be able to ourselves, be able to feed ourselves, grow ourselves, nurture ourselves, but also not just that. But spiritual maturity is not just uh, a marker of development in a personal life, but it's an expectation that we grow in, in maturity, and then we ourselves are able to feed others. Um. Something that's cool that happened with our oldest is when he got old enough, he was able to help us. Gavin, will you make some toast for you and Judah? Those kinds of things. Because he was able to actually not only feed himself, but serve others. But so often, people that should be mature in the faith just come and go, like, that, like a bird in the nest. <laughs> hungry. Hungry. Just waiting for it to be dropped in their mouth. But we need to feed ourselves. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul continues this line of thought to the church in Ephesus. Corinth wasn't the only one that got this. He says, Then we will be no longer like immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. And we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. Growing in every way more and more like Christ who is the head of his body, the church. So some believers are immature because, Paul says here, they're easily captured by the new fad that comes along, the new movement, the new uh, school of thought. Not because they're dumb. I think sometimes we read this and we're like, dummies, got caught up in you know, some cult or some other movement. It's not because they're dumb. Um, it's because they haven't been taught. They don't have the tools yet. If Einstein were to show up today and you were to take him to your computer and say, Einstein, I need you to code something for me. Just keep it simple. In C++ or in Python, just code something up and he can't do it, you'd be like, what an idiot, right? You're so dumb. Of course not. He hasn't been given the tools. He hasn't grown in his knowledge of that. In the same way, people who have not matured and grown in Christ are easily turned by new teachings because they haven't been established. But then I like what Paul says here, and we also often skip over this part. He says, others are immature, not because they're swayed by new teachings, but because they speak the truth like little brats. He says, speak the truth in love, then you'll show maturity. Sometimes we think we're so high and mighty because we've got the right answers and we're just eviscerating people. One of my biggest pet peeves are the, I'm going to go there, the internet warriors, the keyboard warriors, the meme sharers that just dice up people who politically think different than you or religiously think different than you And what we're doing is we're speaking into an echo chamber to get laughs and approval from people who agree with us and we're burning bridges with people who are broken and dying. Speak the truth in love. There's context and moments for that opportunity. Even if you're right, doesn't mean someone wants to hear you when you're being loud and obnoxious. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, what is uh, all these gifts that you have if it's not in love? Then it's just a banging, crashing symbol. It's like clattering noise together. No one wants to listen to it. They're covering their ears going, what is that just noise you're filling my head with? Perhaps you've heard the saying, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you actually care about them. So part of that maturing is learning how to speak and when to speak the truth in love. Again, I digress we'll get back to Acts chapter 2 verse 42 all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles teaching it says and then he goes on to say and to fellowship and fellowship and this is where we're going to spend the majority of the rest of the morning here they were devoted to fellowship so we're going to spend a minute here this has become the most Christian-y saying in the world I think fellowship um, when I hear the word fellowship, I think of what we used to call the fellowship hall. That's immediately what my mind goes to. And I think of like really saccharine red punch and cookies. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 it's the room nearest the kitchen where you drink that and you hopefully get in line early when there's a potluck. And you, uh, you sit in circles and you kind of have superficial chit chat. Um, I, I think... To be honest, I think fellowship has lost a lot of its power behind what the word means because we, it's kind of become defined by a certain place where we talk and eat snacks or a certain moment that we have. It's fellowship time. And so to me, fellowship feels like red punch and and ask how the weather's been. But it's so much deeper than that when Paul talks about it. They didn't even have a fellowship hall or red punch. I know. How did they do it? We don't know yet. Um, <laughs> archaeologists have yet to dig up their fellowship halls. But here's... The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. And koinonia is used 20 times in the New Testament. But of those 20 times, only 12 is it actually translated as fellowship. Koinonia isn't translated as fellowship every time. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 15, verse 26, we're going to have a quiz yourself moment. Again, this is just to yourself, but here's the verse. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. Which one of those words to yourself is koinonia? No, go back. We jumped. I said to yourself to the left of my room. Oh my goodness. (laughs) The answer is offering. 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 (laughs) Hebrews 13.16 says, And don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Without saying out loud, (laughs) which word in that verse is koinonia? It is share. It is share. So here we have offering uh, koinonia translated as offering and then we have koinonia translated as share you see koinonia means to hold in common joint participation partnership it's giving and sharing it's costly it's investment in people so it's more than than red punch and and sitting in 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 a room that's by the kitchen it's it's closeness it's intimacy it's connectedness it's sharing with others that the common the commonality we hold together with the bond of jesus And the Christian life is a life that's meant to be shared. Hosanna will tell you that I am a person who values my alone time, my personal time. My house is my castle and I love to retreat to it whenever I can. I I like to be home. I like to be with my family, but that's like, that's just the most beautiful time. But there's a difference though between solitude and isolation. See, times of solitude can be revitalizing and restful and spiritual. Jesus went into the desert by himself to pray, right? Those, those times of solitude are important. But isolation is unhealthy. Isolation separates us from the vine, separates us from the body of Christ, from the flock, um, from the California Department of Mental Health. If you isolate yourself from other people and you never develop any close intimate relationships, you are three times more likely to die an early death. You are four times more likely to suffer emotional burnout. You are five times more likely to be clinically depressed, and you are ten times more likely to be hospitalized for an emotional or mental disorder. We need others, and they need you. That's what Romans says in Romans twelve five. So it is with the with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. We all belong to each other. He goes on to talk about, if one part of our body suffers, we all suffer. Remember I mentioned that I slammed my finger in the door uh, several, man, it was a few months ago now, it's still all purple. The rest of me was sad too, not just my finger. My finger didn't go off by itself and feel sad, the rest of me hurt with it. When we, when we as the body of Christ experience pain, when we walk through something, we walk through together, we're not meant to walk through alone. We're meant to, to celebrate together, to, to worship together, to encourage one another, to spur one another on. And it's for this reason we value life groups, to share together. They're, they're for times of communication, sharing, praying, encouraging one another. Acts chapter 246, they worship together, it says, at the temple, we just read this, each day and met in homes. So they, they met in the temple, the church, and they met in their homes. We need to be able to, be, to speak, to be heard, and to listen to others. Because what you're hearing right now, this is called a monologue. This is Pastor Brent talking. It's not a, not a dialogue. I'm speaking to you. If you speak too much, our ushers will tase you. They are ready to go. <laughs> However, you can't fellowship in a room with 250 people in it. You need maybe four or six or eight That's why we emphasize these small groups. You you can't fellowship in a crowd. You you can worship with a crowd, but you can't fellowship with a crowd. You can't be known in a crowd. So there's three big reasons why we need fellowship. Number one, for strength to overcome. For strength to overcome. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I met many of us are aware and know this verse. Two people are better off than one. For they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better. For a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So we need fellowship for the strength to overcome. Second, we need fellowship to be sharpened as a person. Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen: As our iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. We need each other to stay sharp. To, 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 uh, sometimes that uh, actually having some abrasiveness, if it's used the right way, can actually sharpen us, can't it? Those we surround ourselves with are who we become the most like. Um, there's a saying that says, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. The people we surround ourselves with, we take on their personalities, we take on their goals. Um, according to research by uh, social, social psychologist Dr. David McClelland of Harvard University, the people you habitually associate with determine as much as 95% of your success or failure in life. Wow. Don't hang out with losers. <laughs> love, love them, love them. But who's in your inner circle, right? You see, if our spiritual life is truly what we profess, and we say, this is of the utmost perf- uh, importance. Remember, we're talking about how they dedicated them- themselves to that. If we actually profess that, then how vital is it that we surround ourselves with people with the same heartbeats, with the same mindsets? Because they're going to be the ones that spur us on. People didn't like that I said, don't surround yourself with losers. I, don't be a loser, too, I guess, be the uh, option. If you don't want... <laughs> Three, live with purpose. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in time of need. A friend is always loyal. A brother is born to help in time of need. Did you know you have purpose for for being? And we talk about, yes, we are created to know God and to worship God. We were created for that relationship. But God created us also so that we could serve one another. He said a brother is born for the purpose of being there for you in a time of need. You were made for someone else. You were made to have their back. You have purpose in your being. Your encouragement, your commitment as a brother or sister in Christ may be what's required for them to get through whatever they're facing, to push them through to the other side. They may be facing something that is daunting, that is overwhelming them, but your presence, your your, your being there for them could be what spurs them forward to making it. You see, the church is not just here to make us feel comfortable and happy and to give us warm fuzzies. That's kind of the problem that's been with the evangelical church as of late, is we've become so seeker sensitive, we don't want, we want everyone to have exactly what makes them comfortable. Is the chair reclined just right? Does, you know, is the temperature everything you're looking for? Are the kids programs, you know, did they make the craft that you wanted them to come home with? Let me tell you something. We're not just here to be fed like that. We just talked about the, you know, the, the, the baby birds in the nest, feed me, feed me. We are here to serve one another. It's to it's to be costly. Each of us has been uniquely designed by God to be a part of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 16. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and in full of love. 1 Corinthians 12. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, I talked about this earlier, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Look to the person to your left, if they are there, and tell them, I need you. Look to the person to your right. Tell them, I need you. We need each other. We need each other. We are committed to one another. Acts chapter 2 again, 42. Going back to our source verse. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We talked about doctrine and the word. To fellowship. To sharing in meals. Praise the Lord. The Lord's Supper. And to prayer. Where we're also devo- we're called to be devoted to prayer. We're not going to speak to this too much today. Not because I don't think prayer is important. But a couple of months ago, on February 5th, I preached a message on prayer. Go back and listen to the podcast. It's a good one. Um, but uh, being dedicated to prayer means praying without ceasing. And uh, you say, how do I do that? It means that, yes, there's times where we actually sit and focus on prayer, but it's also being part of an integrated life where prayer is just throughout our life. Jesus lived a spiritually integrated life with his prayer life. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed while in the middle of preaching to the crowds. He prayed before healing people, and he prayed after healing people. He prayed over meals. He prayed when he was grieving over the death of his friend Lazarus. He prayed when he blessed the children. He prayed when he interceded for Peter, who was about to be tested. He prayed while he was being nailed to a cross. Jesus had an integrated prayer life. We need prayer as part of our lives. Jesus didn't just spend formal time in prayer. He abided in prayer. But then the one we kind of skipped over there, they devoted themselves to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. They were devoted to sharing meals and to the Lord's Supper. So this was often in the early church, a combined activity. You sat down to dinner. The Lord's Supper is part of that. They would break the bread. They would take the cup and share it. And it was part of their meal time together. As a matter of fact, Paul at one point Reprimanded them He's like some people are getting to dinner early Eating all the dinner and no one has any dinner left That's not how uh, communion should happen And, uh, and so he, he gave them instructions On what communion is supposed to be about I think Jesus was intentional With having food that we share When we have communion You see community is built around the table isn't it Thanksgiving dinner Easter dinner Christmas dinner We're around the table It's where community is built It's fostered Where we share together Memories are connected to foods, the aromas, the rituals. We have family dishes that have been passed down from generations. And when we share the cup and share the bread, we're reminded of Jesus' sacrifice. And we celebrate and encourage among one another then that His return is coming soon. That's why we do not forsake the meeting together and breaking bread together because we proclaim the death of Christ, what He did for us, but we also proclaim that He is coming again soon and we are keeping our eyes on the sky, keeping our eyes for our Savior who will return. We are not forgetting that. So if you'll take the cup as you came in this morning, hopefully you got one, and the bread, we'll take the bread out first. We're going to share community together, church, as we get ready to close out this morning. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says to the church, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it into pieces, and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. So before we move forward with receiving communion this morning, here's what I want to say. If you have not yet given your life to Christ, and maybe that's not your plan today, that's fine. We 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 bless you. But here's what I ask is you don't share communion with us because the Bible's very clear that this is something that's for the body of Christ to do together as we proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection. This is an intimate moment for the body of Christ. But for those that maybe have never given their life to Christ before, or maybe you've been far from Christ and you say, now's my time to come back to him. We're not gonna bow our heads or close our eyes this morning. We're gonna be very bold. But you say, Pastor Brent, I wanna be part of this ecclesia, this community that you're talking about, this, this uh, body of Christ. I want to have that identity and that connection with the, the greater body of Christ. And, and so count me in, Pastor Brent. I want to give my life to Jesus. Here's what it means. It means that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came and He died for you. He took your sin and your failure upon Himself, and He, he took that to the cross. And he died in your place. Instead of you, he took your death and he died for you. But then three days later, he was resurrected and he's alive today. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And we're saying, God, I believe that you are who you say you are. And I want you to forgive me of my sin. I want you to give me that life. And I want to follow you from this day forward with that purpose and that intentionality. So right now, with our heads raised and our eyes open, if you say, count me in, Brent, I want to be part of that. I want you to pray with me and I want to accept Jesus in my life. Will you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Anybody in this room say, that's me, Pastor Brent. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? All right. Jesus, right now, we thank you for your body that was broken for us, the blood that was poured out. And we take a moment to search our own hearts. God, show me the areas that I've been inconsistent Give me the courage to face the areas of darkness that I've allowed in. Sweep out the places that I've let my heart be corrupted and renew a right spirit within me, as the psalmist said. Don't cast me from your presence, O God, but renew that right spirit within me, God. Jesus, we thank you so much for your body that was broken for us. The scourging that you took with that whip that broke your body, but by your brokenness we ourselves are made whole. And we thank you, Jesus, that by your stripes we receive healing. Both spiritual healing and physical healing. So I pray right now for all those that came in this room with physical brokenness. We pray healing in the name of Jesus. I pray for backs. I pray for ligaments. Lord, I pray for cartilage. And I pray against heart disease, tumors. I pray for minds. I pray for for mental health. I pray against uh, all the things that would try to break us down. Lord, right now, the healing hand of God. I pray against arthritis. We pray the healing touch of Jesus. Lord, I pray for emotional healing, where we have been emotionally broken and sometimes those scars run deeper than physical scars. Lord, I pray for those that have been carrying a deep wound for a long time. Lord, I pray for wholeness in the name of Jesus, but only healing that you can bring. Where our therapy can only get us so far, where our, where our help, self-help books can get us so far, but we need the healing touch of Jesus. And Lord, right now I pray for spiritual healing, for those that have been spiritually broken, doing it on their own, trying to be a good enough person. And right now we give ourselves the healer, the master, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive the bread together. In the same way he took the cup, He took it saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood do this in remembrance of me now we are not transubstantiationists we don't believe that this turns into the actual blood of Christ it represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out this great juice represents that his blood was poured out for you and for me and his blood washes away every single sin you might have brought into this room today Every sin that has separated you from God, it doesn't matter how great the chasm is that separated you from God. You may say, you don't even know, Pastor Brent. You're right. I probably don't know, but God does. And it's still enough. His blood is still enough for us. So Jesus, this morning, we thank you that your blood is enough to wash us whiter than snow, to make us righteous in the very eyes of God, the, 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 the item of perfection. Sees us as righteous because of what Jesus did for us. And we stand righteous and holy before you because of the blood of Jesus. And so now we take this cup proclaiming Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and that he will return for us one day. And we give you praise in your name. Amen. Let's receive the cup together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Lord, we give you honor, we give you praise this morning. We give you honor and we give you praise. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is that flow that makes us white as snow. Amen, amen. Can we stand together, church? We're going to end just celebrating our King, worshiping Him together as we go this morning. Let's lift up our voices in praise this morning.
0: we know Go in peace. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning.